in your Bibles to Mark 16. Mark 16. I want to speak to you this morning on a biblical examination of the resurrection. A biblical examination of the resurrection. So many times we grow uh, accustomed to hearing about the resurrection. We grow accustomed to hearing about Christmas and, and all these things kind of flood our minds throughout different times of the year. But I want to spend a little time going over what the Bible says about the resurrection. Because if you know anything about your faith in Christ, you understand, first and foremost, it's the power of the resurrection in your life that makes this life even possible. And if Christ were not risen, let's just pack our bags and go home. Because there's no sense in being here. Uh, Everything in our faith is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, I read a story of a man by the name of Frank Morrison. And Frank Morrison was a British lawyer by profession. He was very, very well educated, came from a very affluent background. And in the process of his education, he had been greatly influenced by a number of scholars who actually deny the Bible to be the Word of God. They denied the Bible to be true. They even denied miracles that we know are possible through God's power. Well, philosophically, Frank Morrison became what we would call a skeptic, especially toward Christianity. And he had a lifelong dream. For years, he promised himself that one day he would write a book And this book was intended for one purpose and one purpose only, to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he understood that everything hinged on that. He thought, if I write this book and disprove this silly myth about Christ coming out of the grave, that will put a nail in the coffin of Christianity Christianity finally and forever. And at last in his career, he found time to do so. And Frank Morrison set out to disprove the historic Christian belief that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Well, after months of examining the New Testament documents and examining them very thoroughly, he came to one conclusion. He embraced Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He said the evidence is just too overwhelming. As a result, he wrote the book that in many ways has become a classic apologetic for the resurrection. Maybe you've read it, Who Moved the Stone? Morrison begins his book by saying this. He says, essentially a confession, the inner story of a man who originally set out to write one kind of book, and found himself compelled by the sheer force of circumstances to write quite another. That's the power of the truth of the resurrection. That's a wonderful story of how he was converted by God's grace through the truths of the resurrection. But you know what? That shouldn't be surprising to us. That shouldn't surprise us. Because when you look objectively at the evidence for the resurrection throughout Scripture, it's completely overwhelming. It's completely overwhelming. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 16. Hopefully you're there. And I just want to read verses 1 through 8 to kind of lay a foundation, kind of a historical backdrop for our message this morning. So Mark chapter 8, it's Mark's account of the, uh, the resurrection. It says, When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, 
they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were very afraid. The resurrection, brothers and sisters, is the central key, the foundation to our faith in Christ. William Craig says this about it. He says, the real Jesus rose from the dead in confirmation of his radical personal claims of divinity. If Jesus did not rise, then Christianity is a fairy tale, which no rational person should believe. John Locke said this, our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah stands or falls with it. The question I want to ask you this morning, what are the reasons we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What are the reasons? Obviously, immediately, you can say, well, we believe in the resurrection because it's in the Bible. And that's a good answer. But I want to look at that a little further this morning with you. Because Scripture itself presents a number of specific reasons for us to believe in this resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because it's so foundational, it's so central to the faith that we hold dear It's a very important subject to cover. The beginning of Christ's ministry, the end of Christ's ministry, everything that Jesus taught, every claim that he made while he was here on earth, it all is based on the resurrection. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then you do not need to believe anything that he taught. You don't need to know any or accept any of his claims. So this is foundational to our Christian faith. It's at the center of what we believe as as Christians. And so we need to understand these biblical reasons for believing in the resurrection, both to confirm and hopefully to strengthen your faith in Christ. Frankly, to be able to give a, a defense of our faith to others as well. So I want to give you nine biblical reasons this morning why you should believe in the resurrection. Before I do that, I want to let you know that some of this study came out of of these two books that are up on the screen, one by Nathan Busnitz, Reasons We Believe, and the other, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. I recommend those highly to you. They're excellent works And it covers every detail of the resurrection, a lot more than what we're going to be going over today. But let's look at these nine reasons. First of all, the first reason is because of the prophecy of the Old Testament. Why do we believe the resurrection? Because the prophecy of the Old Testament. It prophesied that the future Messiah would physically die, but also that his body would not decay. If you turn over to Psalm 16, we're going to be going through a lot of verses today. Um, So you've got to get your Bibles out or just listen. It might be easier. Uh, Psalm 16, verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. This is a Psalm of David. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Verse 9 says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, he says. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, obviously, as you read through that, some of that applies to David. But not all of it. 
He was the author of this. But there are elements of this psalm that do not pertain to David. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, Peter argues this using this text. In Acts 2, 24, he says, God raised him up, speaking of Christ, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he says, for David says concerning him, and he quotes the passage that we just read out of Psalm 16. And if you look down at verse 29, he says, brothers, Acts 2.29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both, listen, died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. In other words, his body's still in the grave as opposed to Christ. And he says in verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. All the way in the Old Testament, in Psalm 16, here's David as a prophet of God. God's giving him, revealing to him this message of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. See, Psalm 16 was the place that Peter decided to go on the day of Pentecost to say this is proof that the Messiah is risen, that the grave, the tomb is empty. And even in Isaiah chapter 53, if you've read Isaiah 53, normally we read that on Good Friday. We read it when we're talking about the death of Christ. It's the explanation why Jesus needed to die. That's basically what Psalm 53 is what God was doing as he was enduring the wrath of God for our sins. And it tells us in verse 5 of Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He, speaking of Christ, was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed spiritually. Verse 6 all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We've heard that so many times. We can't forget the glory of the cross. We talked about this a little bit on, on Friday, our Good Friday service. The fact that God took the record of your sins, of my sins, every single one of them, every thought, every act, every word, every deed, every time we failed to love God perfectly, every time we failed to love our neighbor as ourselves, every sinful moment of our lives, he credited that to Jesus Christ on the cross. And as Christ spent those hours on the cross, God poured out on his son what you and I deserved for all eternity as payment for our sin. And Christ was able to secure that debt. He paid it in full because he died, the perfect lamb of God. See, that's the amazing thing about Christ in his death. And that's what Isaiah deals with. But you know what? It's great that Isaiah 53 doesn't leave Christ dead. Look at what it says in verse 9. It talks about him. It says, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea. That's a prophecy, another prophecy that was fulfilled. His tomb was that that was borrowed from this rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. For the death and burial of resurrection, or the death and burial of Christ. I always thought about that. I mean, who would want to borrow a tomb? Do you ever think about that? I mean, that's just kind of a gross thing, right? Hey, can I borrow your grave for a couple days? I mean, that's just bizarre. But verse 10 says this Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his, look at what it says, his offspring. 
Well, how's he going to see his offspring if he's dead? He shall prolong his days. How does that happen to a dead person? The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. One commentator, Edward Young, says this. He's a wonderful commentator on the book of Isaiah. He says, it is of importance also to note that the servant himself will see the seed. If he were to die and remain dead, this would be impossible. Hence, this verb makes clear that death will not hold a servant, but rather, after his death, he will again come to life, and as a living one, will see his seed. And because of all these passages that we have in the Old Testament... As a couple, there's others as well, but just for time's sake, we we don't have time this morning. The earliest Christian creeds based on 1 Corinthians 15, they speak of the resurrection. And they speak of it, it says, he was risen from the dead according to what? According to the scriptures, it says. So we believe in the resurrection because of the Old Testament. The prophecies said that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would not stay dead, but that he would rise. His body would not see decay. Secondly, we believe in the resurrection because of the prophecy of Jesus himself. This is amazing as well. There's a number of occasions throughout his earthly life when Jesus Christ, our Lord, predicted his own death and his own resurrection. Now, at the time, the disciples didn't get it. They didn't fully understand what he was saying. They had in their mind that Jesus was still going to go to Jerusalem and, and kind of kick the Romans out of their, their, their leadership and take over and free, free them of this bondage that they were under, this Roman rule. That's what they thought. They were thinking of a militaristic Messiah. They didn't understand it at the time. But you know what they did after his resurrection? They remembered And they recorded a number of those predictions. One is in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This is after Peter's confession. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Remember when he said that? This is near the end of Jesus' ministry. And in verse 31, Mark chapter 8, it says, He began to teach them, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And then Mark Poltz throws this in there in verse 32. He says, and he said this plainly. In other words, he didn't, you know, use big language. He said it very simply. Yeah, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. But after three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. And the disciples still didn't get it. This is where, of course, Peter decides to rebuke Jesus, which wasn't a very good idea. In Mark chapter 9, verse 30 30 and 31, it says, They went from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching the disciples, saying to them, here's another occasion, "The the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. You would think the disciples would go, didn't you just say that, Jesus? Mark chapter 10, verse 33. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem. It's about a week before his crucifixion. Verse 32 says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, here we go again, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. (laughs) It's amazing the detail. That is in Jesus' words here because each one of those things happened verbatim. Even in Mark chapter chapter 14, verse 28, Mark 14, verse 28, this is kind of one last time. He gives it one last shot with his disciples. He says in verse 27, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
Christ was proclaiming, I will be raised from the dead. I will not remain in the tomb. Now, after Jesus' resurrection, after this predicted event takes place, it's interesting that both the angel on the day of his resurrection and the Lord himself, they refer back to these predictions. Look at Luke chapter 24, verse 6. This is the angel. When they get to the tomb, he says, he's not here, verse 6, but he is risen. And then the angel begins to lecture them. Remember how he told you? While he was still in Galilee, for the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And it says in verse 8, and they remembered his words. It's kind of like an aha moment. Have you ever had one of those? Oh, yeah, now I get it. That's kind of what happened. See, clearly the disciples were supposed to be encouraged about the reality of the resurrection from Jesus. From his own prediction. And so are we. We're to be encouraged by that. Hendrickson writes this, those reminders served as it were to pull the rope that caused the bell of memory to ring so that faith was strengthened. See, when we look at the resurrection, it's just not another, oh, here's Easter. Yeah, he's going to talk about the resurrection. This is something that's central, that's foundational to our faith. And it should edify us. It should build us up in our faith. It says they remembered he did say that. Wow, you know what? I remember him even telling us this was going to happen. And everything that he told us is coming to fruition. It's true. We believe the resurrection because of the prophecy of the Old Testament. We also believe the resurrection because of the prophecy of Jesus himself. But thirdly, because of the certainty of his death. We believe in the resurrection because Jesus died. That may sound a little odd at first. But it's important, very important to understand the certainty of Jesus' death. What do I mean by that? What I'm simply saying is that we believe in the resurrection because, you know what? Jesus was really dead. He was really dead in that tomb. All four Gospels, as well as the rest of the New Testament, record. They document the fact that Jesus was finally executed by crucifixion and that he truly died. Sometimes we read the Bible like it's a fairy tale, even as believers. And I'm thinking, how can I get the point across that Jesus really died? And I thought, you know what? Immediately, my mind went to members of my own family who I've gone to their funeral. And they were dead. They died. Hard time. They died. Same thing happened to Jesus. He died. He just didn't fall asleep. He was dead. His body gave up its life. He was every bit as physically dead as those loved ones that have gone on before us. He truly died. A couple centuries ago, a man by the name of Venturini Venturini, promoted the idea that Jesus really didn't die. He simply slipped into a coma. Uh, Because of the trauma of of Good Friday and all that was going on, he just couldn't take it. His body just shut down, and he went into a coma. And so they buried him, and when they buried him, he was in this cool tomb, and because it was cool, the coolness of the air kind of revitalized him. And suddenly Jesus kind of woke up and got out of there, and then he went around telling everybody that he was raised from the dead. I mean, we look at that, and it's so ludicrous, but when you look at Scripture, it's even more ridiculous. Because the Apostle John absolutely shatters that viewpoint. If you turn over to John chapter 19, verse 30, this is biblical evidence from the, the, the Apostle John that Jesus was truly dead. In verse 30 of chapter 19 of John, it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That's Greek for he died. Okay, that's what that means. It says in verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, what's the day of preparation? Friday. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, 
What's when Sabbath? Sabbath is Saturday, but when does it begin? It begins at sunset on Friday. So it was very important to take those bodies down. It goes on in verse 31. It says, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first. Remember, Christ was between two thieves, two other criminals who were crucified along with him. They broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with them. them. Verse 33, it says, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Another fulfillment of prophecy that not one bone in Christ's body would be broken. Now, that passage describes what we could all agree is something that was very brutal. I mean, the process of crucifixion was one of torment. (laughs) When you hung on that cross, you could hang there for days. You just didn't die. Because the way that you would die, you, you would eventually suffocate. Because as you're hanging on the cross and your body under the weight and your hands are either tied or they're nailed and your feet are nailed, the only thing you could do is your body crushes down on your rib cage, just stand up, take a breath, and then go back down. You could do that for a long time if your life depended on it. This is what was going on on that cross. And when the Romans, who were very, very good at death, this, they, they had this down to a perfection. When they wanted to get home to their family or their friends and they were on cross detail, it's like, oh, let's get rid of these guys. You know, okay, get the hammer. I'm tired of them trying to stand up and take another breath. We'll just break their legs. And if you break somebody's legs, guess what? They're not going to stand. They're going to totally collapse, and you're going to suffocate within a few moments. Think of somebody taking a sledgehammer and just violently breaking somebody's legs. That's really what this is picturing. Archaeology that they have unearthed over in the Middle East, actually, they found one, one person who they actually believe was crucified. Because the evidence was there. And guess what? Both of their legs were broken. One was cleanly broken. The other one was just shattered. So breaking the legs made it impossible for the victim to continue to push himself up in order to get that next breath to stay alive. And basically it it killed them by asphyxiation. So a team of soldiers on that day started with the man on each side of Christ. And when they got to Christ, the Bible says they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. Now these are hardened Roman soldiers. They know death when they see it. They're accustomed to seeing and experiencing and recognizing death. So there's no doubt in their minds that Jesus was dead, according to verse 33. But it was very important for them as soldiers to make sure. Because if if a Roman soldier was derelict in his duty, if they were on cross duty and and somebody was uh, told to, to be crucified and they were to die on the cross, and somehow they lived through that, guess what happened to that Roman soldier? He was crucified. He got the punishment of the person that maybe made it through. So they needed to make sure that these individuals were dead. And verse 34 says, but one of the soldiers, when he came to Christ, he realized that he was dead, so they didn't have to break his legs. But they said, "Uh, you know what, we just want to make sure. So it says he pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water, and he saw it, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that also you may believe. Now, when we see pictures of Christ on the cross, you know, you see this, this dainty little white man up there and, and he's hanging there and he's got maybe a little poke in his fingers and a couple of pokes maybe in his feet. And he's, you know, got a crown of thorns maybe on his head and there's maybe a little blood here and there. That's not the picture of a crucifixion. 
I mean, the person hanging on the cross would have been a bloody mess by the time they got there. And the soldier, when he came to Christ, he didn't say, ah, oh, you know, he looks dead. He said he's dead. But you know what? I got to make sure. He didn't take his sword and just go, let's see. Hey, Jesus, he's still alive. That's not what this soldier did. He took this sword and he placed it under the rib cage of Christ and he thrust it upward into his heart. And they knew how to do this. They did it all the time. He was certifiably dead. It wasn't just to stick him to see if he'd respond to a prick. Now, there's a lot of debate concerning the death of Christ. Why? Because if Jesus didn't die, then the resurrection doesn't really mean anything either. The soldiers knew that Jesus was dead. John witnessed it. Jesus didn't fall asleep. He didn't swoon. He didn't drop into a coma. He was certifiably dead. And you know what? In the first century, this wasn't even debated. It wasn't even questioned. And matter of fact, even Jesus' enemies agreed that he was dead. In Mark chapter 15, Pilate and the centurion both agreed that Jesus is dead. In Matthew 27, the scribes and the Pharisees, guess what? They agreed that Jesus is dead. In fact, the Sanhedrin made up a plan to seal the tomb so that no one could come falsely and steal the body and say, oh, he rose from the dead. They knew that he was dead. Paul makes it clear that Christ was dead in several places. Romans 5, 8, for one, we know this verse. But God shows his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Or first. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. It says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Or 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put, guess what, to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. But what about the evidence outside of Scripture? Is there any evidence outside of the Bible? You say, well, that's all from the Bible. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because there's several extra-biblical, non-Christian sources that demonstrate the resurrection is true. One historian, Josephus, writes this, Pilate, upon hearing and accused by men of the highest standing among us, condemned him, Christ, to be crucified. And he goes on and he, in this passage, in his writings, he goes on to speak about the crucifixion and the death of Christ. Another Roman historian says, Nero fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of hate, of, uh, on a class hated for all their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus or Christ, from whom name had its origin, origin, suffered the extreme penalty. That's Roman talk for crucifixion. Suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Other documents as well, from a secular point of view, uh, uh, Lucian writes this, the Christians you know worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. Even, listen to this, the Jewish Talmud, the Jewish Talmud writes, on the eve of the Passover, he was hanged. There's no debate about the reality and the certainty of Jesus' death. He didn't swoon, he didn't go into a coma, and eventually revive himself. He was certifiably, totally dead. What that means then is that afterwards, he appears to many. It was clear that what? He rose from the dead. Fourthly, we believe in the resurrection not just because of the Old Testament or prophecies of Jesus himself or the certainty of his death, but fourthly, because of the confidence of the disciples. And this is a good one too. This is a fourth reason why we should believe in the reality of the resurrection. 
you know, whether you believe in the resurrection or not this morning, I want you to understand that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose from the dead. And you can look at this a couple of ways. First, they all believed and they all proclaimed that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that he had appeared to them, all of his disciples. Clearly, again and again, they made this claim. Minus Judas, of course. So let's, let's take a look at this. These are eyewitnesses that Jesus himself chose for us to confirm his resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, verse 21, it says, God raised him up, loosening the pains of death. We already read this because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In Acts 2, 32, this Jesus God raised up and we were all witnesses. Clearly, the disciples believed this. During Peter's second sermon in Acts 3.15, it says, And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, and we were all witnesses. Acts 3.26, God having raised up his servant, speaking of Christ. Or Acts 4.10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are all witnesses to these things. Peter, even in sharing the gospel in the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 40, he says this, but God raised him, speaking of Christ, on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, listen to this, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate, who drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Even the apostle Paul believed this. In Acts chapter 13, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the forefathers. And Paul comes to Psalm 16, and he even cites cites that psalm in Acts 13.33, speaking of the resurrection of Christ. Acts 17, verse 31 Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all, listen, by raising him from the dead. Paul even writes in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 3 and 4, he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins and according to the scriptures... That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then down in verse 11 it says, Whether then it was I or they, speaking of the apostles, so we preach and so you believed. This is what their whole ministry was based on, was the resurrection of Christ. They were fully confident that Jesus had been raised from the dead. As a matter of fact, they were so confident that they died. They gave up their own lives for this testimony that Christ had been risen from the dead. If you've done any study of different cults, you know that Joseph Smith was willing to die to confirm his testimony. But most of his followers fled. (laughs) They weren't. See, here the followers of Christ actually gave up their lives. Let me remind you how they died. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome around 66 AD. James was beheaded by Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. John was banished to Patmos, the island of Patmos, and he died probably a natural death in Ephesus. 
Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Philip died a martyr. Bartholomew was flayed to death. Thomas was martyred, perhaps speared to death in Madras, India. Matthew was martyred in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, preached in Egypt and was eventually crucified there. Thaddeus preached in in the Syrian and Persian region and eventually was martyred. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Paul was beheaded. They all gave up their lives. Based on what? On the claim of Jesus came out of the grave. That he was the Lord and Savior. I mean, if you look at the list of the death of the 12 original apostles plus Paul, there was one suicide. We spoke of him on Friday night, Judas, who wasn't a true believer in Christ. There was one natural death, that's John. And there was 11 martyrs. Of the 11 martyrs, four were crucified, one was beheaded, one was flayed. And when you think of how they suffered, they obviously believed to their core what they were preaching and teaching. And they, they went from this band, this motley band of followers of Christ, locked in a room, hiding from the Roman authorities, to being a force that turned the world upside down. How did this happen? What changed them? It was the reality of the resurrection of Christ. They believed in the reality of the crucified and resurrected Christ. Well, the fifth thing here, the post-resurrection appearances. This is another reason why we should believe in the resurrection. One of the ways God chose to establish the reality of this event in Scripture was he gave us at least 13 post-resurrection appearances by Christ. He just didn't just show up once over 13 times. These appearances were to more than 500 people. They occurred in at least 10 different locations when you study it throughout Scripture. The first was on the morning of the resurrection. He appeared to Mary Magdalena. Remarkable story, John 20. Secondly, you have the other women on the same morning who came to the tomb. Later that same day, you had, he appeared to Peter and two of the disciples on, on the, uh, the, the Emmaus Road. Uh, the fifth appearance was also on the same first resurrection Sunday. They happened in a very small amount of time. That evening to ten apostles without Judas, obviously, and Thomas wasn't there either. Judas, by the way, probably had already, he had already taken his life. All of those five occurrences occur that first Sunday when Christ rose from the dead. The sixth appearance was eight days later on a Sunday evening, one week after the resurrection. In that time, Thomas was there with the other apostles. The seventh appearance of the resurrected Christ was to the seven apostles in Galilee recorded in John 21. The eighth, it says, then Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 7, appeared to James, his half-brother. Matthew 28 tells us that he appeared to all the apostles in Galilee Then you have the Great Commission where maybe all 500, all these people were there and he appeared there. See, this is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection. And if you read that text, you can see where he implies, he says, hey, listen to this. This is a real event. As a matter of fact, you can go talk to the witnesses. Because when that book was written, some of the witnesses were still alive. Go visit them. They're in their mid-50s A.D. around that time. 20, 25 years had gone by. The 10th appearance was to all the apostles on that ascension. Then he appeared to Stephen in Acts 7. He also appeared to Paul in Acts 9. And then he appeared to John on the island of Patmos. John Wahlberg writes this in his book on Christ. He says, taken as a whole, the appearances are of such various character, and to so many people, uh, it's it's, it's, it's under so many different circumstances, that proof of the resurrection of Christ is as solid as any historical fact that could be cited in the first century. What else would God have to do to show us that Jesus 
was truly raised from the dead. Well, the sixth evidence of the resurrection of Christ is the conversion of the persecutor Saul, or Paul as we know him. The conversion of Paul. Now, the reason I bring this up is because his conversion was so, such a a transformation, such a miraculous change. I mean, let's remember who this guy was. If you read in Acts chapter 7, verse 57, it says, But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him, speaking the stoning of Stephen. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Paul, before his conversion. Verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he crawled out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, he died. And Saul approved, it says, of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3 says, but Saul was ravaging the church. Listen to this language. He was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In Acts chapter 22, verse 3, it says, Paul is giving his own testimony here. He says, I am a Jew born... Uh, in Tarsus, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. And then he says a little bit about his, his experience in verse 4. He says, I persecuted this way, speaking of Christianity, to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. In verse 20, or 9 and 11 of uh, Acts 26, he says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked, locked up Many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This was the heart of Saul. In Galatians 1.22, it says, I was still unknown in persons to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Or you read in Romans 1.1 where Paul says, Paul, how does it start? A servant of Christ Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but what? Jesus Christ as Lord. What happened to this guy? What transformed him? What could have possibly produced such a radical change in this man? Well, both Luke's testimony in the book of of Acts and Paul's own, own testimony identify the foundational change was that he encountered the risen Jesus of Nazareth. That's the only explanation. His conversion, if you want to read about it, is in Acts 9. But he says over and over, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, have I not seen the risen Lord? 1 Corinthians 5, 8, last of all, As one untimely born, he appeared to me also, Paul says. Only the reality of Jesus' resurrection can explain how this radical and sudden change in a man who arrested, tortured, and voted for the death of Christians happened. Well, seventhly, 
We believe in the resurrection because of the conversion of the skeptics. The conversion of the skeptics. Even in the Bible, they're skeptics. I can think of two, James and Jude. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, listen to this because Mark's sharing a little bit about Jesus' family. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and, and, uh, and Simon? And are not his sisters with us? And then it says this, And they took offense at him. This is Jesus' own family. They were skeptics. I mean, remember, Jesus wasn't an only child. There were at least seven, perhaps more, in his family. Here listed the, the, the brothers and two sisters. And most people believe that Joseph, the father of the family, must have died at some point after Jesus' visit to the temple when Jesus was 12. Before he began his earthly ministry. And if that's the case, guess who was responsible for teaching this family the spiritual truths of Scripture? It was Jesus. Jesus was the one in charge because Joseph, his dad, had probably passed away. He was the one responsible to carry out the spiritual duties of Deuteronomy chapter 6. He was the man of the house, Jesus was, after Joseph left the scene. I mean, stop and think of this, beloved. No family ever had a better teacher. No family ever had a more consistent example, a perfect model of the Father than they did having Jesus as that example. But whenever it was that Jesus' siblings, his four brothers and his sisters became aware here, that their older brother claimed to be more than simply the, the son of Joseph and Mary, guess what? They didn't get it. Even though he laid out a perfect example, they didn't get it. They all refused to believe in him. As a matter of fact, the Bible says they thought he was nuts. They thought he was crazy. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says, And when his family heard it, they went out and seized him. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. Poor Jesus, man, he went over the edge, blew a circuit. We got to go help him. It says they thought he had to take leave of his senses. And so they go to Capernaum to bring him back to Nazareth. We just need to bring this boy home and lock him up. Literally, the language says that they sought to control him. Remember who Jesus is. Jesus is God. And his brothers and sisters are trying to control him. The language says they literally wanted to arrest him and bring him back to Nazareth. That's how bad it was in their family. Their attitude toward Jesus became even clearer later in an incident in John 7, just six months before his crucifixion. Look at John 7, verse 5. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Can you imagine? Your own family has turned on you. That's right before his crucifixion. That all happens before the resurrection. Well, what happens after the resurrection? Is there any evidence they changed their mind? Well, look at what happens to James, for example, in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven. It says that after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Jesus' disciples gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, and guess who we find there in Acts chapter 1, verse 14? All these, with one accord, cord, it says, were devoting themselves to prayer together with woman, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. His brothers were there. Well, what happened to, hey, you're nuts. This guy's crazy. The next time we meet James is in Acts chapter 15. Guess what James is doing? He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem a devoted follower of Christ Jesus. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul puts him in the company of all the apostles. Paul says, hey, I'm an apostle, and all the brothers are with me. 
In James 1.1, he actually wrote a book that's in our New Testament. This, this guy that thought Jesus was nuts at some point, he wrote the book of James. And he starts off the book of James. He says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, now remember, who's he talking about? He's talking about his brother. When's the last time your sibling addressed you that way? <laughs> servant of God and the Lord. You know, I don't think so. Something happened. He calls himself slave of God and a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened? He saw the resurrected Christ. That's what happened. He became a follower of his older brother. He became a follower of the Messiah. He acknowledged him as Lord, his sovereign God. His confidence in Christ and in his resurrection was so strong that James died a martyr. He went to his death believing this. Well, what about Jude, the other one? He gave us the book that bears his name in the New Testament. Listen how he begins after the resurrection. He didn't believe him before. He thought he was crazy. But in Jude 1, verse 1, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. He doesn't even mention that he's related. <laughs> Matter of fact, in Jude 4, a couple verses down, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He's talking about his own brother. In both James and Jude, we have the ultimate skeptics. Both these two men grew up with Jesus. He was their father for all practical purposes. They rejected his claims. They believed he was nuts. Well, what produced the change? It was the resurrection. Well, eighthly, also because of the empty tomb. We believe in the resurrection because of the empty tomb. The tomb of Jesus of Nazareth was and still is clearly empty. There's no body there. From the first resurrection Sunday, the Romans, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, Jesus' friends... As I mentioned, even Jesus' enemies all agreed. You know what? The tomb was empty. He rose from the dead. If you read, have the opportunity to read through John 20, you'll see accounts of this. There's multiple witnesses on that first day at the tomb. There were two angels. There were the Roman guards guarding the grave. There was Mary Magdalena. There was at least three other women. There was Peter. There was John. They all saw the empty tomb. Even Jesus' enemies admitted that the grave was empty and that his body was gone. According to Matthew, the Jewish leaders bribed the Roman guards, remember, to say what? That the disciples came and stole the body. Why? Because he, he knew the body wasn't there. The tomb was empty. Neither the Romans nor the Jewish leaders ever furnished a body to silence the apostles' claims. Think about it. That would be the easiest way, right? Oh, you're claiming your, 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 your guy uh, rose from the dead. Well, here's his dead body. That's all they had to do. Some liberal theologians come up with the wackiest stuff. One I read was they believe that on, that, on that, that Sunday morning that the women went to the wrong tomb. They went to the wrong tomb. And so, you know, when they asked the gardener where Jesus was, because they looked in there and there was nobody there, they were standing at the wrong tomb. And the gardener says, well, you know, uh, he's not here. And then they just left. They immediately left the conversation and they, they, they ran away. But they didn't stick around for what the gardener meant to say. He's not here. He's actually over there in that tomb. That's what these people believe. Now, obviously, that didn't happen because this, this tomb was large. It's not something you'd miss. Remember, this was a tomb of who? Of a rich man. You know, most tombs didn't have a giant stone rolled in front of them. 
Most tombs weren't in a garden setting near the crucifixion. And if they got the wrong tomb, how do you explain the appearances of Christ and the fact that his enemies never point out the right tomb? I mean, if everybody went to the wrong tomb and there was nobody there, all his enemies had to do was say, well, no, it's not this tomb, silly. It's this one over here, and here's the body. They never did that. Why didn't they do that? Because the grave was empty. Christ had risen from the dead. Well, the last thing I want to leave with is kind of a simple one, but because of all the inadequacy of all the other explanations, and there's a lot. One says that the the resurrection is a group hallucination. That's what they believe. They believe everybody was hallucinating at the same time. Well, first of all, hallucinations are not collective experiences. And besides that, hallucinations can't account for the empty tomb. Hallucinations can't account for the conversion of Paul, James, and Jude. Another idea is that as time passed, this was just a legend. They just made this story up. But you know what? It's ridiculous because there's not enough time. We have evidence of the very day. We have testimonies of the very day that Christ rose from the dead. There's no time here for legends to develop. Another idea is that the resurrection was a fraud. But you know what? Some people say Joseph of Arimathea wanted his tomb back, so he took the body. Other people say the Romans took it. The Jewish authorities took it. The disciples stole it. I mean, they go on and on and on. But they don't account for the fact that the disciples really believed that they had seen the risen Christ and they gave their lives for that. Would you do that for something that wasn't even true? No other explanation but the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead can adequately explain all the data that we've looked at this morning. It's amazing what God did in his providence, beloved, to confirm them. Confirm the facts to his disciples, to those believers in the first century, and to us today. That the reality of the resurrection is just that. It's a reality. Believers, God has given us every piece of evidence you could ever want. I mean, I get it. You weren't there. Neither was I. But you know what? We have more than enough. Countless witnesses. And we have it recorded in historically the most reliable document and inspired document, the Bible. It has piece after piece after piece of evidence for us to look at. So I want to encourage you as believers, be settled in your faith. Know that the resurrection can give you the strength to get through today and tomorrow. Because this is something that's true. And maybe there's those here today who have yet to put their faith in Christ. And I'm confident in a, in a group of people this size that there may be people here who are not in Christ. They haven't repented of their sins. They haven't believed in Jesus Christ. I wanna, want you to understand that, that Jesus died, that he was raised again, and his resurrection is God's proof to you that one day, listen to me, one day you will stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment. You will stand before Christ at the judgment. You will either confess him as Lord now and enjoy the forgiveness of sins and eternal joy in his presence, or you will confess him then on that day of judgment when it's too late and be ushered into eternal hell. But confess him you will. Father, we thank you for the proof that you've given us of the resurrection of your son. Lord, we know that he lives Christ Jesus lives today. He's with us every moment of every day through the power of his spirit. We thank you that this message that we've heard this morning can encourage our hearts. It can encourage our hearts as believers to know that we're on the right side of this.
that this is the real deal, that Jesus Christ was not some fraud, but he truly was the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as we've committed our lives to him, we are on the winning side of this. And as believers here today, it leaves us with a tremendous responsibility to reach out to a lost and dying world and to preach and to tell the good news of the gospel that Jesus came, he died, but guess what? He was risen on the third day. And because of that, his payment for sins on Calvary secures our salvation. What wonderful news. If you're here and you haven't trusted Christ, it's not too late. It's not too late. You aren't here by accident. The evidence that you've given, been given of the resurrection today is central to the gospel message. It proves Jesus is everything he claimed to be. It's the foundation of everything he taught. And if you're a skeptic here today, I pray that you would commit to look into this further. To ask God to give you the strength, the understanding, to trust his son as your Lord and Savior. To turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. It's a humbling thing to do. It's a pride-crushing thing to do. But that's what God calls us to do. So I trust that you will cry out to him. It doesn't have to be an elaborate prayer. Prayer is simply talking to God. As a matter of fact, a man in the New Testament simply cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it came from a sincere heart. And the scripture says that that prayer was heard. God has the power today to transform your life, to forgive you of every sin that you've ever committed. Won't you trust him? Won't you cry out to him today, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, we thank you. We pray that we would have a wonderful day with family and friends. Pray for our fellowship time across the way that you would bless that as well. Just allow us now to raise our voices in song as we continue to worship you in our closing, closing hymn. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.